Hello and welcome to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti. This episode is the first in our Basic Doctrine series, and it's on the Godhead. This series is designed to help establish the fundamental gospel truths that we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should not only know, but should be able to teach with some degree of comfort. Because there's a lot of things out there that people have thought about church doctrines and things that they have felt represented the teachings of the church, it's important to make sure that we aren't the ones helping to spread misinformation. So part of our episode will not only go into discussing the different teachings that we have about the Godhead, but also to hopefully dispel some of the myths that may have permeated some of our discussions. So to start out our discussion before we have our interview with Dr. Robert Millett, who has authored several books and articles and has been very involved in interfaith dialogues about this very subject, we want to give a quick reading of what is said on the church's website about the Godhead. It says, There are three separate personages in the Godhead, God the Eternal Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. The Father and the Son have tangible bodies of flesh and bone, and the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. They are one in purpose and doctrine. They are perfectly united in bringing to pass Heavenly Father's divine plan of salvation. God the Father is the supreme ruler of the universe. He is the Father of our spirits. He is perfect, has all power, and knows all things. He is also a God of perfect mercy, kindness, and charity. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the Father in the Spirit and is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He is Jehovah of the Old Testament and the Messiah of the New Testament. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and made a perfect atonement for the sins of all mankind. His life is the perfect example of how all mankind should live. He was the first person on this earth to be resurrected. He will come again in power and glory and will reign on the earth during the millennium. All prayers, blessings, and priesthood ordinances should be done in the name of Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. He is a personage of spirit, without a body of flesh and bones. He is often referred to as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, and the Comforter. The Holy Ghost bears witness of the Father and the Son reveals the truth of all things, and sanctifies those who repent and are baptized. Here now is our interview with Robert Millett on the doctrine of the Godhead. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Robert Millett. You still go by doctor even though you're retired, I take it? I, uh, <laughs> I use it as little as possible. <laughs> Well, he is here to uh, heal us, if you will, on our, <laughs> our correct understanding of one of the doctrines that we've talked about in part of our doctrine series, and this is the basic doctrine of the Godhead. We're going to try and keep it to a, a few key points, because this is a subject that clearly philosophers and theologians have been talking about for well, since the beginning of time. So, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. But let's let's revisit quickly this idea about doctrine and and just kind of give us your thought on on what this means, how, how you interpret the, the term doctrine. Well, doctrine means teaching. And it's interesting, in recent times, President Nelson has become very sort of emphatic about something, and that is 
that doctrine, plural, doctrines, is not found anywhere in Scripture. Interesting. That the word is doctrine. In other words, it's the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the gospel. But, yeah, I know that you've had a person speak about the nature of, of doctrine. I've often thought, too, that there, there are one or two other factors that I've thought about. One is, to what extent has this particular doctrine been found in official declarations or proclamations? Yeah. In other words, if you talk about uh, the living Christ or if you talk about the family of proclamation of the world— Especially the latter. That's getting even close to being scripture at this point. You notice what I mean? Right. It's so uh, so strongly used. And so those are examples of where, for example, if we're trying to figure out what it means to say that Christ serves sometimes as the Father, we look back to that 1916 statement. So I, I think another another issue of whether something is, is uh, or is not the doctrine of the church is, is it taught in official declarations or proclamations? Yeah. Absolutely. And and the doctrines are truth. I think that's right. One other thing, this may sound kind of homey, but I'll say it this way. Does it stick? And, and maybe that's what Michael Goodman means when he says, do we continue to teach it as it been taught from the beginning? In our church, we don't very often, what do I say, denounce false doctrine so much. Okay. It sort of dies by neglect. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It withers away a little. With the exception, perhaps, that I'm thinking in recent times of President Kemble formally in general conference saying the Adam-God doctrine is false. Okay. It was pretty emphatic. Right. But think of other things. You know, someone will say this or say that, and and it just isn't picked up. That's and it fair. Sort of, it sort of dies a natural death. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got, a, we've got one here that, that I want to say is uh, really hard for people to navigate when they start to really think about it, mm-hmm. and that is the doctrine of the Godhead. Okay. And so, there's a lot of words that we use that we've inherited from other theological backgrounds. People from other faiths become converts, and they bring some of those terms and thoughts and ideas that are ingrained in them. And And when we talk about the word God itself, it can mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. It could mean the title. It, it's not his personal name. Sure. Uh, it's more of a title kind of thing. So, when we're talking about God, let's let's first off talk about what we are going to be referring to so there's less confusion. Well, just for limitation's sake, assuming you'll have someone talking atonement later. Yes. I, I, let's limit ourselves to God, our eternal Father. Okay. Let's do that. Okay. I, I like that. So, what do we know about God, our eternal Father? Well, I think we could begin by saying this much. And in many cases, some of the things we're going to be talking about I'll try to draw the distinction between what we believe about this and what perhaps other Christian groups believe about it. Sure. Is that okay? Yeah, because we're going to be interacting with these groups. Yes. There's a hierarchy in the Godhead, Um, meaning God the Father is the ultimate and supreme head of the universe. Uh, The Son and the Holy Ghost uh, obviously are gods in their own way, but the ultimate uh, the ultimate object of our worship is God the Father. And they give their allegiance. And they give their allegiance to, to him. him. And, and you only have to study a little bit from the New Testament or the Book of Mormon about Jesus to know he is constantly deferring to the Father. Absolutely. The Father this, the Father that. I do. I only do what my Father told me to do. I, my doctrine's not mine, but him that sent me, his that sent me. And so, first of all, uh, that, that there is a hierarchy in the Godhead. Now, in, in the Christian world, I would say in what we'd call the Trinitarian world or the Nicene world in Christianity, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. 
in order to, to be assured that father and son especially are co-eternal, as they would say, or they've always, there's never been a time when there was no son. Right. It was always father and son. In order to ensure that, they wouldn't be able to handle well the notion of a hierarchy in the Godhead. But I think the scriptures just, you have to work hard in the Gospel of John to come up with anything other than Christ serves, worships, and uh, loves the Father. And yeah. So I think we start there. There's a hierarchy, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. I, I came across a quotation here that I love from Elder McConkie. It's, it, it, it's from his new witness for the Articles of Faith. I'll just read it quickly. In the ultimate and final sense of the word, there is only one true and living God. He is the Father. The Almighty Elohim, the Supreme Being, the Creator and Ruler of the universe. Christ is God. He alone is the Savior. The Holy Ghost is God. He is one with the Father and the Son. But these two are the second and third members of the Godhead. The Father is God above all and is, in fact, the God of the Son. It's a good statement. Yeah. So, we'll start there. Well, Latter-day Saints bring to the table or to the religious conversation this rather unusual notion that the Father has a body of flesh and bones. Yeah. Now, in my, ex- my experiences with those of other faiths, particularly Christian faiths, uh, this is rather jolting. This, for them, is difficult in the sense that they, they don't see any value or reason for God to have a physical body. For one thing, they'll say, well, how can he have a physical body if he is in and through and above and beyond all things? Well, we say that because it's by means of his Holy Spirit that he is able to, or we would call the Spirit of Jesus Christ or the light of Christ, is able to be in and through all things. But as I've pushed my friends a little bit on this, and and we're talking about what's called the corporeality or the physicality of God, and they've said, I just can't imagine God being, being physical. My response to that is, is Christ God? Yes. Did Christ get a physical body back in the resurrection? Yes. What's the problem? Right. So I think, I think while people are quick to jump to, to see this as some kind of almost blasphemous statement, it really is not. In fact, there's nothing about Jesus Christ that you could say is limiting. For example, did his resurrected body deny him of some power? I mean, when he says, for example, as he's about to ascend into heaven, all power in heaven and on earth is now given to me. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty big. Yeah. In other words, it doesn't sound like it has any limitations. And so I think if we can picture Christ as a resurrected, embodied being, why then would that be difficult for for others? You know, we, we're prone to talk about uh, what did Joseph Smith know when he left the sacred grove? I guess we don't know a great deal of, about he what didn't he speak knew. About we knew, we know some things. There was a father and there was a son. Yeah. One of the things I don't think we know for sure is whether he understood at that point that God had a physical body. If he did, he may have. He just didn't say anything about it. That's not mentioned. In fact, in, as far as Joseph's sermons, the earliest I can find is an 1841 sermon where he speaks about the father and the son both having bodies. Then he does again in, in 1841, then one in 1842, and then finally, by 1843, we get the statement that we have in the 130th section, the Father has a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's. My late colleague, uh, Milton Backman, a uh, wonderful historian, found something years ago that I think is just priceless. He came across a, a letter written by, excuse me, an, an article written by Truman Coe, a Presbyterian minister in Kirtland, who had written an article about the Latter-day Saints. He had lived in Kirtland among the Latter-day Saints, as it were, for four years. And he gives interesting descriptions of, of the saints. And then he says this, something like this. He says, they even believe God has a physical body. 
like we do. That document was published in 1836. Hmm. That implies to me that at least by 36, maybe earlier, the saints were talking about God has a physical body. Right. So there's a case where we may not have it in sermons by the prophet. It's being talked about. Somehow. Yeah, somehow, somewhere. And But why, why is that such a big part of this this teaching? I mean, why does that matter? You know, it matters to us because it is so closely linked to the doctrine of resurrection. It's so linked to the inseparable union of body and spirit. I think, I think too, because we're talking about a being who is like ourselves. The Christian world, in many ways, have kind of almost defined God out of existence. It's as if he's a force. He's an influence, a good force and a good influence and a powerful one. But to say, is he a man? People are slow to say that. They, they actually sometimes feel comfort in the great divide. That's, that's correct. There. That's correct, that, that we're so distant. And, of course, that's a very Platonic notion. That's a Plato notion that God is the distant, the distant being. Yeah. That is, our difference from him is so great that we just can't even talk about him and us in the same sentence. Yeah. Through the centuries, you get, you get, especially among Roman Catholic theologians, what's called the via negativa. You can only talk about God in terms of what he is not. Okay. Right? Because that's and the that's only they, sure thing. Yeah, I think <laughs> Thomas Aquinas liked to do this. Talk about what he's not. Yeah. We're, we can't be arrogant and suppose we know what he is. Let's talk about what he isn't. And so I, th- I think it, it builds within Latter-day Saints and those who will listen to what we have to say, the idea that there, there's a closeness between God and us even in the fact that he has a physical body just as we do. So I think it's a number of things. Yeah, it implies so many things. It, it speaks of his involvement in the universe, as, as, and it speaks yes. to our potential as well, Yes, which we can talk about at another time. But, yep. uh, so that, that, but that does kind of tie into this ni- idea that God was once a man, was, is a belief that we've yes. kind of adopted through. Yes, and in many ways, this is even more problematic for many Christians than the belief that man may become as God, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. This one especially, that God was once a man. And, and I would say that even in 1844, uh, in April, when Joseph delivered the King Follett Discourse, many, many of the saints stumbled with this one. Yeah. This was tough. He was once a man. But I think it was the prophet trying again to say he's closer to us than we have any idea. He knows what we go through. Why? He's been through it. He's been through a mortal period. And so the language, what sort of a being was God in the beginning? God himself was once as we are now, exalted man, sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. If the, great, if the veil were rent today and the great, Jehovah, the great God who holds the world in its orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power was to make himself visible, I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like ourselves, in the very form and likeness of man. In other words, when people, when, I say, when people say to me, you really believe God was once a man? I say, well, yeah, because I believe he is a man. If I believe God is a man, I start there. Once I say I believe he has a body of flesh and bones, I'm saying he's a man. Right. So I do believe that he was once a man? Yes, I think he's always been a man. And so that's a tough one for those outside the faith, but it's something we have to stand by because it's a distinctive restoration teaching that again links us to God in terms of his ability and his capacity to comprehend what we're going through. And to be involved in our lives. Absolutely. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to use Jesus as our example of someone who went through this, but to have God the Father, to have a body like we do, and to have lived once as a mortal, 
that's a remarkable, a remarkably comforting thing to me. And it's interesting because as we talk about his character and his attributes, we we speak of things that everything that he is possessed of is is the example of God. Yeah, he is he's the embodiment of every everything every godly attribute we say. Right. Or every attribute in perfection. Right. But we're not talking whether he's 6'2", nope. has blue eyes, nope. <laughs> things like that. Uh-uh. We're talking about different types of characteristics that make him in fact, a god. In fact, interestingly, I will occasionally get people asking me because of our belief that God was once a man and that uh, our, our, our unusual belief about that, they will say, well, how do you answer the question of God changes not? Well, that's not talking about the, like whether he was a man. That's talking about his attributes. It's talking about his qualities. He's forever generous. He's forever unwilling to be partial. He's forever truthful and so forth. Uh, and, and the lectures on faith, which the early brethren uh, taught and spent so much time with, which I find to be absolutely fascinating, Lectures, basically lectures three, four, and five, deal with the character of God, the attributes of God, and the perfections of God. And so I think we'd say that that what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do have in common is that each of them possesses all of the attributes in their fullness, in their perfection, uh, divine attributes. But all those necessary. They are. Whatever, whatever is necessary, you'd say, well, how much does God know? And if I say he knows all, he knows whatever he needs to know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think to, and this was such a big issue in the lectures on faith, to suppose that we had a being who didn't know everything, you know, Jacob is, he knows all things in the Book of Mormon. But to try to imagine me getting down and praying and asking for divine guidance on a tough issue and to hear a voice say, my goodness, that is a hard one. I, I don't know. I need to check with somebody. <laughs> uh, that That won't build faith. And so... I think the idea that we don't need to worry about a God who is inadequate in any capacity. He has whatever power, whatever might, whatever knowledge he needs. Well, and that brings up the next question. We use these terms omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent to talk about God. And I like to use omnibenevolent as the way that Mm -hmm. I describe God Mm because I believe that that is truly something that is uniquely a a godlike characteristic. Elder Maxwell used to call it omniloving. Yeah. And I think that, that there's less um, ambiguity when yeah. you talk about that. But when you wor- use words like omnipotent and omniscient, there's actually – those are pretty loaded terms depending on, on what you mean by that. Yes. It's almost as if if we're going to use them and, – and I use them occasionally, speaking or writing. But I'm, I try at the same time to say what I mean by that. I think there's nothing wrong with the words if we understand that it means God has all the power he needs. God has all the knowledge there is t- t- for him to have. Or, or God is through his spirit is in and through all things in the sense of omnipresent. Not caught up so much with, again, a platonic model of, of God as being absolutely the absolute other, that distant, distant deity, yeah. which is often implied by the omnis. Yeah. We don't believe that. But because a word is used differently by another group doesn't mean we can't use it right. in a proper way. If somebody says, don't use grace. The Protestants believe differently than we do. Well, but they don't own the word. We, we. Yeah. I was, I was at a seminar one time with speaking to groups not of our faith, and I remember afterwards this man just chewing me out for using. He said, "You continue to use our language." I said, well, "Like what?" He said, "You use the word regeneration." 
I said, uh-huh. He said, that's our word. I said, you, you own that word? Is there a copyright on that word? <laughs> and no, I think as long as we know what we mean and what we don't mean by those words, right. I think we're okay. And so in this particular case, I, I at least want to introduce the idea that Latter-day Saint prophets and apostles have spoken differently about what these words mean. Yeah. And so when we, when we do our research on this, we can use those words, but just be understanding that there are different ways that people interpret those terms. I think, for example, I know there's, there's some fun debates through the years as to whether God knows all things. The issue becomes, what are you using for the foundation of your knowledge? In other words, what is this based upon? If it's based upon Scripture, you're hard-pressed to find any instance in Scripture where God does not have all power, all knowledge, and that through His Spirit is everywhere present. So if you stay with Scripture, he is the God of the omnis in the in the proper and yeah. correct sense. Well, and, and you know, I've I've heard different applications of these. For example, when it's the the idea that God knows all things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He knows our past, our present, and our future. Um, there are those that say, well, if He knows our future, then it's decided. We, we He already knows it. Um, and so, how does that work with things agency. like agency? Yeah. Um, and and I've I've tried to use the analogy of the. He sits on the hill overlooking the parade route kind of idea mm -hmm. that we're on the parade route. We know where we started and we know where we're at, but we may not see the finish line. But if you're up on a hill looking down, you can see all of that. You can see the past, you can sure. see the present, and you can see where you're going. And therefore, he's able to guide and direct us to the finish line, That's if you good, will. good analogy. Um, I often talk about the difference, too, between causation and knowledge of. In other words, right. God's knowledge of all things doesn't necessarily cause us to do all things. The human will is involved. Well, and does God know the future or does he know possible futures? I mean, there's lots yeah. of ways that we can infer this. And so I guess part of the, I don't want to say advice, but just the thing to think about when speaking about the doctrine of God, we use these words, but just understand that, mm -hmm. that as we discuss these things, people can understand them to mean different things unless unless we're specific enough to say what we mean by them right okay. so so that's that's one thing to kind of consider when we talk about that and and frankly philosophers have been beating this issue around for years oh, and yes. so there's a lot that can be said uh, about those sorts of things but let's talk then cuz i think we've we've kind of talked what we do know about god so far as his ability to he is our father our the creator of our spirits and that he has this plan for us, and and but there are myths even about those sorts of things with right. respect to God. So, what are some of the myths, the things that maybe we've talked about but don't understand that they're not entirely spot on? Right. One one of those would be uh, an idea that I think we're we're gradually getting out of using it. We're we're moving beyond that. But I was brought up in the church with the idea that in the pre mortal life, when the grand council of heaven was called, that that there were two plans presented. The Father, no, excuse me, Christ presented a plan and Lucifer presented a plan. And you know, it's unusual because as early as James Talmadge writing Jesus the Christ, he was very specific about the fact, God the Father's plan. That's the only plan. It wasn't Christ's plan. It's a little like the word gospel. We speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ properly, correctly, but the fact is, it's as Paul calls it, the gospel of God. Yeah. It's God's gospel. It's his good news. Christ happens to be the center of that good news. So I think the idea that 
there were two plans, I think that's fading away. The scriptures clearly teach it's God the Father's plan. Lucifer basically offered some pretty serious amendments to that plan, which didn't carry, but there was only one plan. And I think that's an easy one. I think Latter-day Saints are talking more and more correctly about that one. Yeah. Here's one that this, and this one probably makes me more nervous. I don't know that I, is it a false idea but let, or not? Let's say this way. It's, it's, to, it's to be too carried away with talking about God being subservient to law. God, is laws, law, God law follows governs the God. Yeah. It's, it's not unlike a belief that makes its way around the church sometimes of God. I heard one speaker say it this way. Our God walks the razor's edge. He must be obedient. If he isn't, the, universe, the intelligences of the universe would, would vote him out of office. <laughs> well, I think the last thing in the world we need to worry about is God falling, God slipping, or God erring. He doesn't, he doesn't cease to be God. That's Alma's, what do you call it? Al, that's Alma's that's way. It's a counterfactual. It's, it way. is. Alma, it's Alma's way of arguing toward the absurd, like Lehi did. If this, then this. And if this, then this. And if this, then we are not. But the reply, we are. Right. Therefore, it's false reasoning. So, yeah, God does not cease to be God. And, and nor, nor should I think we be too hung up with God obeying law for this reason. The prophet Joseph Smith taught God gave the law. He says God is the author of law. Now, I don't know all that that means and all that entails. I just think we want to be careful that we don't almost become, begin to sound like deists. That is, God is off somewhere in the distance, and he has left the laws and governing powers to handle things in the meantime. Or he started the clock and it's and, now ticking. Uh, yeah. Okay. That, that's the deistic God, which, which we don't buy. And so I would just say we ought to be a little careful about, in any way, speaking about God being son of kind of subservient to law. If he is, then we ought to worship the law because it's stronger. <laughs> it's stronger than God. <laughs> yeah. How omnipotent can God be if, if he's subservient to the law, right? Right. Here's, here's one. Everything that happens on earth is according to God's plan. Okay. Now, why do people take that position? Well, because they want to be able to say God is in charge. Right. Well. Again, back to the all-powerful. That's right. He's in charge of everything. Is he in charge or isn't he? So when, when something takes place, for example, over and over through the years, especially when I was a priesthood leader, I would hear members of the church say, I don't know why God would give me this depression, but I know there's something I should learn from it. Or when I had a heart attack in 2001, this is my own case, the day after one of my sons is in the hospital room with me. And when I'm finally awake enough, he turns to me, he said, he's really angry. He says, this is not right, dad. I said, what's not right? He said, that God should give you a heart attack. <laughs> I said, Jeff, God did not give me a heart attack. Well, how did you get one? I got one because I had a blockage in one of my arteries. <laughs> um, I think the, t the ten tendency to sort of blame God for everything that happens in mortality, when in fact it's part of the turf. It comes with the turf of mortality. Sure. Heart attacks happen. I think, generally speaking, things, things move forward in a natural course, except occasionally God intervenes, and we call that a miracle. And so, I don't think we have to believe everything that happens on earth is according to God's will. If that's true, we'd say, well, the Holocaust was God's will. Would, would we say that it was God's will that 240,000 people were killed in Asia some years back with the, the waters covering the land? No, I don't think so. Things happen. God can intervene. 
in many cases, does not choose to. Yeah. Well, this is the problem of evil. Yep. That that other philosophers have, have talked about, and and really what it does come down to is who we believe God to be does impact whether yeah. or not we see these events as his fault it's a or bit, fault at all. It's a bit why Latter-day Saints don't hang up as much on the problem of evil and suffering as some do because of what we believe about God and what we don't believe about God. Mm-hmm. See, if I were a, if I were a um, I suppose a strict Calvinist, a, a strong follower of John Calvin's teachings, then I would say God's sovereignty is everything. God is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens but that He had something to do with it, including our salvation. Including, or not. absolutely, He determines who made it before and who didn't. Right. But you see that also adds that difficult detail of, yeah, well, what about the traumas and the tragedies of life? Did he cause all of that? You know, you think back on President Kimball's great uh, 1950s talk, Tragedy or Destiny, where he says, did God guide that airplane into that mountain? Did he, did he guide that little child out into the street so the car could hit him? I, I just think those kinds of questions arise quickly when you say God's responsible for everything. Right. Well, he's not. Here's one that I, I guess people could argue with me about. It, it, it seems to be kind of a Protestant idea, but we've sort of picked up on it in recent years, and that is the idea that God has a personalized, distinctive, individual plan for each person that comes to earth. I hear that a lot in testimony meetings. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Now, am I saying it's wrong? No, I'd start by saying, of course God has a plan for all of us, the plan of salvation, okay? And that works for all of us. Sure. Now, if you mean by that, God has certain things he would love to see you accomplish and that you have the capacity with his help to accomplish. Coordination even? Yes. Coordination, divine guidance, of course. Um, I, think, I think what I'm just a little nervous about is that there, was, that, there was a, that there is within me this spiritual genetic blueprint that I must somehow actualize and bring to pass when, in fact, God has set down the plan of salvation. He has taught us the gospel through the prophets. And, we don't, and beyond that, God may have specific things for you and me to do, but I think we have to be careful about this saying, he has this special, special plan just for you. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement. Do you know what I'm saying? It seems almost like a fate yeah. mentality, which yeah, is, that's again, one of the reasons very Calvinist in, that's right. in a similar way. That's right. That there's a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. This one's been around a long time, and I still continue to hear it. Uh, you know, Martin Luther was once heard to say how because of his fear of God— and even his anger with God, the fact that he couldn't overcome his own sins uh, until he discovered what we'd call the law of justification by faith, Luther would say things like, I don't feel comfortable with the anger of God, but I feel very comfortable in the arms of the loving Jesus. Well, it doesn't take too much to show that the God of the Old Testament is Jehovah right? and that Jesus is Jehovah. And so we're not talking about two different persons and in some ways, especially when people say, well, look at those horrible things that happened. Uh, look where it destroyed this people and that people. I think we're saying the Scripture, the Old Testament, says more about people and what they were like than about God. You've got the Israelites who come out of Egypt but really never get Egypt out of themselves. And so the Lord has to use rather drastic measures sometimes in order to keep them a distinctive people, covenant people. I think uh, one of my favorite General Conference talks is Elder Holland's great talk called The Grandeur of God. He gave at the 
October 2003 General Conference. And, and I love the way he says it. There, there is, because of the Book of Mormon, there's no Old Testament, New Testament gap. Right. You just go straight from Lehi to Jesus. Right. And so you don't see any difference in God. And unfortunately, people without the Book of Mormon or without the knowledge of, of an eternal, God's eternal plan of salvation, they are prone to look and say, well, gosh, why are things so hard and tough and angry in the Old Testament and you have such a loving, sweet Jesus in the New? Well, we would know it's, it's one and the same being. And so I don't think we ought to be too uptight nor angry with the God of the Old Testament because that's the same one that says love one another in the New. Yeah. Well, we have a challenge here because Scripture itself is written from a human perspective. That's right. And so it's going to be what people envision or perceive God to be. That's right. And whether that's really God or not is is to be determined. But uh, so often, I've heard it say this way: so often we see things not as they are, but as we are. Yeah. You know. Yeah, which is very true in this case. And I say that it's part of what we end up teaching to other people. That's is, right. Is what we've come to think God is. That's right. Whether that's true or not is to be that's determined. Right. But. And with that being said, we do have this idea that life eternal is to know God and Christ. We hear, read that in John. Yeah. And so, what does that mean? How do, how do we know God? You know, the, the, that word know is very interesting, K-N-O-W. Clearly, the, one that comes, the, the definition that comes to mind for most people would be intellectual, rational understanding. It's, in that sense, what does it mean to know God? Well, I think... We are challenged and charged by the prophets to learn to know all we can about God. Mm-hmm. The more I know about God, the more I can begin to try to be more like him or like his son, Jesus Christ. And so we don't downplay rational knowledge, the importance of studying Scripture. I remember uh, years ago when I taught some religion classes in the Department of Religion at Florida State University, I was asked to teach Old Testament, which, as anybody knows me, that's my least <laughs> I won't say least favorite, but it's least qualified. Uh, I know it less than any of the books of Scripture. But I was asked to teach the second half, so I taught Isaiah to Malachi. Okay. And I, and I had a, an idea as I was preparing for that class that what I wanted to do is give to them on the first day of class the final exam questions, essay questions. All right. And it, and it occurred to me that if I did that, that maybe I could get them to study in certain channels and see recurring themes in the Old Testament. Okay. You follow me? And I remember one of the questions I asked was, from all you've studied from Isaiah to Malachi, who is Jehovah? Who is Yahweh? And I thought, I think those kids enjoyed all semester long as they're studying, they're looking for the person of yeah. God, the God of the Old Testament. And so... It seems to me there's great value in studying, learning all we can about God. We begin to see, we begin to learn more about the character of God, about the loving nature of God, and so forth. But I'm prone to think that even more than intellectual or rational knowledge, what we're talking about, the word knowledge, you know, in the Old Testament, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bare a son. That meant Adam had her, an intimate relationship in this case, a sexual relationship, but an intimate relationship with Eve. And the Lord uses that over and over in the Old Testament. My people do not know me. Right. It isn't that they couldn't say, well, he has these qualities. They didn't have the kind of covenant, close, intimate relationship that a special chosen people should have with their chosen God. And so I think we're talking here not so much intellectual, rational, as we are experiential, relational. That is, to know God is to 
gradually begin, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to think like he thinks. Paul talks about we have the mind of Christ. That's at the end of a chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, that's all about the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. We have the mind of Christ. And so I think as we as we come to know God, we come to think as he thinks, feel as he feels, do as he does, or Jesus. And so if we're learning all we can about God, and if our relationship with God is growing deeper, then yes, it'll result in eternal life. It is life eternal then to know God in both ways. To, to, to live his life. Yeah. yeah. Li- and we call it eternal life. And as Elder McConkie used to point out, there eternal is not an adjective. It's a noun. It's one of God's names. And so eternal life is God's life. Yeah. And there's there's some interesting other layers to this in the sense that as you bring up this idea of a covenant relationship, we can see the relationship of Christ to his Father. Yeah is the example of relationship that we should have with the Father. To, to imagine imagine the closeness that was theirs. In fact, there, one of the great moments, I heard Elder Holland speak about this before he was Elder Holland. When he was the <laughs> commissioner of education, I remember a young Jeffrey Holland speaking to seminary and institute teachers. And he, he went, he took sayings from the Gospel of John along the lines of what we spoke about earlier. My father and I are one. Mm-hmm. I'd come to do my Father's will. The Father doth not leave me alone, for I always do those things that please him. He went through about 10 of those from the Gospel of John, and he said, now, how about this one? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then you see the drama. The Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, become this alienation from the Father, which Christ had never experienced. I mean, he'd never known. You and I are in pretty good shape in terms of sinning and repenting. But this isn't something (laughs) Jesus had ever done. And so the fact that they were so close and had been so from the foundation of the world and that the great test for Christ, the great agony in Gethsemane and on the cross was to be cut off from the Father's spirit, you come to appreciate what kind of a sacrifice he made. And what types of pain that caused. That pain we can't comprehend. Absolutely. So... I think part of part of this to kind of put a little summary on it. I have one of my favorite quotes uh, comes from Elder Sterling W. Sill, mm-hmm. who said it was a blessed man who not only obeyed God but who said he agreed with him. <laughs> I guess part of growing up in life spiritually <laughs> is to come to agree more and more with God. Right. I think that's the oneness. Right. <laughs> you bet. And so, excellent. Thank you for going over these these thoughts again. There is more that probably could be said about oh, this. No question. Um, but for the basics of it, again, as we teach God, we should understand those fundamentals and stray away from some of those things that, that maybe traditionally or culturally we've adopted and, and, and aren't fully justifiable. You know, it's interesting, too. There's an irony about this, and that is the more a person seriously and earnestly studies the fundamental doctrines of the, of the faith, the fundamental doctrine of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints— um, the more he or she learns of a profound nature. In other words, gaining profundity doesn't come by wading through profundity all the time. (laughs) It comes through continual attention to the simple principles of the gospel until you move beyond that first simplicity into a second simplicity. You move from simplicity through complexity into a kind of second simplicity. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming in and talking about that. Great to be with you. I want to thank Robert Millett for his input, his thoughts, and his guidance, and 
I want to give one last bit of counsel. One of the challenges with this topic is that we understand that we don't want to treat God like he's an exhibit in a zoo to be studied from afar, but someone to become acquainted with intimately. And we talked about that at the end, but it can't be stated enough. Thank you for tuning into this episode in our Basic Doctrine series here on the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. We have an article that accompanies the posting of this episode on our website at ldsmissioncast.com. That article will have links to relevant sources as well as the content that was read at the beginning of this podcast. That is the official doctrine as put out by the church on their website. We encourage you to read it, to study it, and we would even encourage you to take some of these sources and use those as the material that you share as you talk about the Godhead with those not of our faith. Thank you again for listening and stay tuned. Our next episode in this series of basic doctrines of the church will go over the plan of salvation, what it is and what it isn't. Thank you again for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it, in iTunes, on Stitcher, or even on Spotify. Thanks for listening.